My name is Harrison Till, and I work in the private bank at Bank of America Merrill Lynch. And Harrison, this is a special conversation for me. Um, You're one of the first interns uh, that I actually got to work with at at my old job at Platinum Rye. You have a very compelling story. You're beyond being one of the sweetest, nicest, and one of the best people I know in the world. Your story of when we met and what you were doing just to get a job as an intern with your background in sports, playing college sports, going to grad school, you had a lot of opportunity choices that came about. Tell me a little bit before we go into that about your job in private banking, the type of people you work with, and maybe a little bit how it does cross over to your sports background. Absolutely. So pretty basic. After 2008 occurred, when the economy went into a very, very challenging place, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, and U.S. Trust Company essentially all consolidated into one large financial firm. They got rid of all their proprietary products and assets divisions, so they're very agnostic and consultative, just trying to essentially service their clients. So I've been there nine years now. My role is to pound the pavement, hustle, and grind all day long making sure existing clients are happy and taken care of with whatever they utilize the firm for. Second set of responsibilities is to identify new opportunities where any person you could ever come across. It could be a privately held business looking to sell their company and they want investment banking services. It could be an individual who just had a liquidation event. They're looking to help get some tax advice, wealth preservation advice, how to manage their assets. And it could be a professional athlete who just came into a ton of money or an entertainer that needs some financial planning guidance. So it really does vary. Every day is different. And speaking of professional athletes, um, you know, back in 2000, was it 2008, 2009 when you started your career uh, over at Merrill Lynch Bank of America? I know athletes in the sports world, uh, you had a little bit of a leg up in that space uh, based on your, your history playing college sports. And it was, I think, super influential and in at least kind of getting your foot in the door. What was unique is you usually don't hear about too many former athletes going into uh, investment banking or or, or private banking or wealth management. Um, Usually if you do see that, they're usually more of a figurehead to kind of get through the door and then the real, you know, smart guy kind of comes in and and does his job. When, When we had met, we were super excited that a college football player was coming to our office because we had these big, heavy cases of Snapple antioxidant water that got delivered every day. And all five foot eight of me, it was too heavy to carry. So we thought, you know, the, the big linebacker goon was coming in. It was going to do all the heavy lifting. Uh, and very quickly, we learned that you were the smartest guy, not only, uh, not only in our room, but probably the smartest guy in the entire university and definitely in the entire sports program. You went to school undergrad at Duke University. Is that correct? Exactly. And did you play? Did you start playing sports um, in, in school at Duke? I did football and track and field there. And did you play football and track in high school? Uh, yes, I did. And was did you go to Duke for football? Originally for track and field, I was a hammer thrower. I could imagine with your size. It's <laughs> yeah, so pretty random, but uh, that certainly opened up the door. Went to a public public high school in Wayne, New Jersey. Had a few options, and Duke was pretty close to home. Had a bunch of friends that were already there, and provided the opportunity to get in there. And how did you get into the football program at Duke? So today, 2017, Duke's football team is halfway decent. 
when I was there, they were literally the worst team in America, unfortunately. What was this, 2004, 2005? Yeah, very rough situation. They were at all the way at the bottom of Division 1A. There was really not that much support from the administration. They had a lot of coaching turnover. They had a great basketball team. Always. Who were some of the players on the team when you were in the basketball team when you were in Duke? So I'd say the most well-known ones, Sheldon Williams, Chris Duhon, Daniel Ewing, J.J. Redick. Shavik Randolph. Very cool. JJ's uh, here in Brooklyn, or he's in Philly now. Yeah. He's living in Brooklyn. Long commute to Philly for JJ. Yeah. So very cool. So you graduate Duke. What was your major at Duke? I studied cultural anthropology. You went to Duke for cultural anthropology. I, I, I can't pronounce it properly. It's too many <laughs> syllables for, for, for me with my Hofstra Delphi uh, uh, degrees, or Delphi degree. But what does that even mean? Great question. Here's the way I would always explain it. So Duke University is a liberal arts school, which means they have no undergraduate business school. Otherwise, that would be obvious. I would, would have loved to have done accounting or finance. They didn't even offer it. So you have to find a degree program in a liberal arts setting that maybe you feel like you can relate to or maybe you feel like is somewhat understandable and you can kind of excel in it, leaving your options open for after to pursue whatever career you want to choose. Cultural anthropology, I would define as the study of different cultures around the world, and then the curriculum included, different industries, different businesses. You can kind of tailor it any way you wanted to. It sounds like I'm going to dig up fossils in Egypt. You know, it makes a lot of sense because there's a store called Anthropology. Okay. Uh, it's a female's um, clothing and accessories store. I know my wife shops there. I never knew what it meant. Now I at least understand it's probably filled with a lot of worldly products of all different cultures. Exactly. Well, thanks for the explanation. I don't think a lot of us are going to be anthropologists listening to this. Um, I haven't met an anthropologist yet. Um, so that you know is a very interesting thing. You you went and when you graduated from Duke, um, how many years did you play? In, uh, so oh, I'm sorry, you the football team at Duke, not the best. Uh, not the best program or the most high-profile program. How did you end up trying out for the football team? So when I was at Duke, just doing track and field first, the facilities were all intertwined with one another. So the football team would meet the track team, the track team would meet the lacrosse team, so on and so forth. I messed up my knee my first year. Thank God nothing tragic, but was in was in the rehab facility for quite some time. And what happened was I befriended a lot of the guys on the football team. Duke's a small school, 5,000 undergrad. A lot of the guys were from the New York, New Jersey area. Had a lot in common with them and started getting closer and closer. Summer school comes. The place turns into a ghost town, and only the athletes essentially are on the campus. And one day I was messing around with a few of the guys long snapping. I think we were barbecuing. And they said, you should try out for the team. There's nothing to lose. It would be a lot of fun to all be together. What year were you in school? I was going into my second year there. So this is and, the, and, and had you played uh, football in high school as a long snapper? Yes. Okay. So now you're a year in. You're a, so, you're a sophomore going into your junior year or junior or freshman going into sophomore? Freshman going into sophomore year. And so you start your eligibility. You try out for the team. And you played uh, ball at Duke for the next three years? Two years. What ended up happening was the academic coordinator for the football team made me aware that there's an NCAA rule. If you graduate early from your existing institution and you have leftover eligibility to keep playing, if you want to go to another school specifically to pursue a master's degree, 
you can take the existing eligibility with no penalty of sitting out, and you can go to the next school. So I was at Duke for a total of three years. Summer school every year? Yeah. Why would you do that? Because track and field went into summer session one, and football, you had to be there for summer session two. And I always felt like it would be a huge advantage to get ahead on credits, be on campus, try and boost the GPA up in any way I could, and just continue kind of moving forward. So I, I went to school for a little over four and a half years, um, not pursuing any additional degrees. It just took a little while longer. Most people want to be in school for four years at least. It's the best time of your life. You meet friends, you party, hopefully you learn along the way. But you wanted to finish in three years. I always thought the faster you can move through this and the more experience you have kind of jumping all in and not spreading it over time, I think I just always felt from mentors that I was surrounded by, my own parents, that I would just figure it out along the way. And sure enough, that's kind of the way it worked out. It's funny because as I've gotten to know you, you're somebody that uses people's time very wisely. A phone call with you is no longer than a minute. A meeting with you is usually probably me talking for 44 to the 45 minutes. This may be the longest conversation we'll ever have. But time, time was something that you started, it looks like you valued and we're trying to take as much advantage of it. Very much so. I would say the relationships that I built while I was at Duke, a personal mentor of mine is now the dean of the law school. There's a gentleman named Paul Hagen who built a reputation nationally, not just at Duke, as a sports law expert on the representation hiring process. So he was advising Grant Hill, Shane Battier, some of the highest profile names to come out of there on the agent selection process, how to get the best deal for themselves, and kind of how to proceed with with who to hire. Someone like that, or someone like Mike Krzyzewski, or someone like, you know, Sheldon Williams, who I was seeing go through a lot of these steps at earlier ages, was a very, very big impact on my life because I saw, you know, this period of time, as great as it was, it was not going to last forever, and you needed to have a plan going forward on how you were going to attack your endeavors. And what was Paul's role when you were in school at the time? He was introduced to me as a gentleman that could advise student-athletes on how to pursue the next steps of their life after their career was over. And does Paul work with a lot of students at that time? He, he did. He, I'd say he worked with a lot of the student-athletes. He was, he was a, he's a full-time professor at Duke Law School when I was there, which is 2002 to 2005. Like I said, now he's the dean. But, but in 2002 to 2005, while you're there, Paul's nice enough to open himself up to the students also sounds like he's got a pretty busy day job in the law school. How do you endear yourself to somebody like that and really cut through the clutter to differentiate yourself with someone that is sounds like is still very impactful or had been impactful in your life back then and clearly as the dean of, uh, of, of the university now, the law school now, is a very probably impactful figure in, in, in the world. How do you endear yourself to that person? You're just another student athlete. You're playing track and field. You're not Sheldon Williams or Grant Hill. You don't need advice on how to select an agent. You're a long snapper. You might be on the field five, six times, hopefully less, a game. Why does he even care to help you and become your mentor besides your charming face? So the academic coordinator for the football team and the track team at the time recommended I go speak to him. 
as you just mentioned, I was fully aware of how serious this guy was and how limited his time was. So I would always, every email I sent, every voicemail I left them, would always begin with, I want to be considerate of your time. I want to be efficient with your time. I do not take anything for granted. Anything you can let me know is available. Please let me know and I'll make it work no matter what. Now that sounds like a lot of voicemails you left me and other people I've uh, I've seen you communicate with. Where did you get where did where did that get installed in you? Where did you learn to actually adopt that quality? I would have to say my parents. They they raised my brothers and I. I'm one of three boys. I'm in the middle, and they raised us to take nothing for granted, and to not you know to not be unappreciative about anything. If someone gives you an opportunity, maximize it, but at the same time, don't overdo it. I've got to know your brothers over time. What do they do for a living now? My older brother is a real estate developer, and my younger brother is, a, is also a real estate developer. So both brothers in real estate. I know your older brother uses time very wisely. He speaks faster than I do. <laughs> He's a great guy. So from, from that point of view, you're at Duke, you're graduating, you find this opportunity to leverage your, your remaining eligibility to go to, grad, to, to go to another school, whether that's at Duke or another college, to be in a master's program and still play on the football team. You mentioned something that you know this won't last forever. Master's degree, grad school, expensive, time-consuming, also something that if you achieve it, sets up your career. Why did you want to play football when you could be focused on the bigger picture? I was very, very close to just moving back to New York. Family is here. Everyone's happy and healthy. All my friends are here. And I thought it would be a good opportunity just to kind of get life started. And one or two people sat me down and said, don't do this. Do not give up on this. You have two full years left to keep playing. Ten years from now, you will wish you did this. Because they thought you would go to the NFL? No, because once these college years are back, once they're gone, you won't be able to get them back. You're LUF, from the day you graduate high school, the NCAA allows you five years to participate in NCAA athletics. You can only play four of them. One's a redshirt year. I was fortunate enough to utilize the redshirt year, graduated in three years from Duke, which gave me two left remaining. And do you remember the people that gave you that guidance? Absolutely. So I would have to say Paul Hagen. And my father were the two main people. And what were they telling you or what were they putting in your head that would be the benefit of this? Was it the fun and the camaraderie? Was it uh, staying in good physical shape? Um, was it networking? Was it What was really the benefit that you said to yourself, all right, I'm going to go through this. I'm going to go through the summer practices and the boot camps and the traveling. Uh, what was your hope for the benefit of doing this for a couple more years? I mean, the fun and the camaraderie of it. I think that's something that would just come with any team, building exercises, any company, any athletic team. For me personally, not that many people had ever really used this NCAA graduate school rule. It was an opportunity, I thought, to test the waters, to experiment, to be a trailblazer, and to make my own way. I, w I was never really interested in just being just another follower. I kind of was paving my own way all the way through high school, which really did start with the hammer throw, to be honest, because not that many people do it at the high school level. Not many people are your size either in high school, so <laughs> right. let's let's be clear there. So you graduate from college in three years. You have two years of eligibility left. You have a phenomenal relationship with a very influential person in the university. You think about going home. You decide you're going to actually go through this. You're going to go get your master's degree, and you end up at 
the Ohio State University. Eddie George taught me that very well. It's not Ohio State. It's the Ohio State University. How do you go from Duke to the Ohio State University? I know there's not big rivalries there, but they don't like each other that much. Where does that happen? So I would, I would attribute it to two things. Duke, as I mentioned, is a smaller private school. Nothing wrong with that. It was just a different experience than what I was accustomed to. I made a decision when I was really going to pursue this, that I was going to look at every Big Ten school, every Pac-10 school, and every Big 12 school to get a complete opposite end of the spectrum experience. And the way I kind of narrowed it down was all these coaches that I contacted, once I got my release from Duke's athletic department, some were not really familiar with the grad school rule. Some had no interest. It's not as it's not as if I was a Heisman Trophy nominee. I'm sorry. Go back. Sure. I'm confused. You apply for your master's degree. You got great grades, great letters of recommendation, and you can probably get into a lot of these schools. But you wanted to ensure that you'd have a role potentially on one of their football programs. Role being, I would say, preferred walk-on at best. I never was I would I be in a position to be a. a so you're choosing your school based on where you think you had a best chance to be a walk-on. If anyone here has seen the film Rudy, we know there's no guarantees for walk-ons. Exactly. So, and Rudy had been out for many years at that point. I'm sure someone if coming from Wayne, New Jersey and being friends with the Schaefers has seen Rudy too many times. Absolutely. <laughs> what made you say, I'm going to contact coaches? I mean, that's a little bit you know, overreaching, isn't it? I think some people would be a little intimidated by some of these figureheads, but... This was the only way to go is to go directly to the horse. Some of these other administrative support people on the staff, they have a role they play, but you'll just get lost in the shuffle. So the coach is the decision maker. Absolutely. And you're skipping a lot of people by going to the coach, but you're saying getting lost in the shuffle is something that can happen dealing with the administrative levels. Absolutely. So the recruiting coordinators on every Division One A staff, they get inundated every day with cover letters and highlight mm-hmm. films, and now a lot of it's on social media. Don't the coaches too? They do, but depending on how you can kind of navigate through the waters, if you can get directly to them and it's coming from someone that maybe they know personally, like anything else, it's relationships. So how many colleges did you look at? 30. How many did you send letters or contact? So contacted 30 with a letter of interest and a highlight film of long snap. And that was something that you emailed or mailed? Mailed, hard copy. Hard copy. You put a big envelope together with a with a film? Exactly. DVD or tape? Tape. VHS. At the time. Can't even watch it anymore. <laughs> exactly. All right, well, let's find those tapes and get and pay the companies to uh, get it online for us. Absolutely. I, I think as my intern, you uh, pro- probably put no retreat, no surrender from VHS onto uh, <laughs> digital for me. So you send out 30 packages. Here's my resume. Here's my highlight reel. How many called you back? 12. Out of the 12 that called you back, how did you end up uh, over at uh, The Ohio State So University? out of the 12 that called me back, eight had some interest in offering what they call preferred walk-on spot. Of the eight, you schedule five official visits, just like you get to do at a high school. And that's an NCA rule, five, to- five official visits. Exactly. Unofficial, you can take as many as you want because you're covering your own cost. Five official visits. They fly you in. They put you up in a hotel. They take for a walk-on long snapper. If if they think you're worth it. Wow. Even if they're not offering you a scholarship. So where'd you visit? Ohio State, Michigan, Wisconsin, Stanford, and Texas. I just went to Michigan for the first time. I don't know how you chose the Ohio State, but I haven't been there yet. Maybe you'll take me one day. Who's the coach at the Ohio State University at the time? At the time, it was Jim Tressel. Jim Tressel. Jim Tressel's probably one of the most. Uh, celebrated college football coaches of all time at one of the biggest college football programs of all time. 
How did you cut through to Mr. Tressel? What happened was my parents had met as undergraduate students and got married at Ohio State. So there's a little bit of a lineage and affinity for you at the university. They they love the university probably more than I ever will. And did they know Jim from school? They did not. He did not go there himself. He went to Baldwin Wallace, which is a smaller school in Northeast Ohio. But they had maintained enough relationships at the university, and I actually had a few friends on the team. I was able to kind of navigate through the waters to the associate head coach at the time was a guy named Daryl Hazel, who's now in the NFL as a wide receivers coach for the Minnesota Vikings. Daryl Hazel was a guy who was originally from New Jersey and had some coaching experience at Rutgers. So there was an open line to him where I could kind of relate to someone on the staff. And the relation you're telling me only sounds like that Daryl was from New Jersey. And he spent some time at Rutgers, and there were a few friends in common. So friends in common from Jersey. What was your relationship with Rutgers? The fact that it was in New Jersey? The fact that it was in New Jersey, where I'm originally from. And that's it. And saying to someone, hey, you're from Jersey, I'm from Jersey, you did it, I want to do it, that was almost enough to endear yourself to him. Absolutely. And then there were one or two people he had recruited that were personal friends of mine that transitioned the phone call from absolutely cold to a little warmer. And those people were all willing to help you? Absolutely. Why do you think they were willing to help? Just because of the relationship we had. We were really, really close. There was no hidden agenda. It was all heart on the sleeve type of uh, communication. And they were able to call him in advance, make an introduction, and it just worked out. So you got two years of eligibility left. You get offered uh, an opportunity to visit the school. You ultimately get offered a preferred walk-on role, and you get accepted into the uh, business school at The Ohio State University. And that's a two-, three-year program? Two-year program. Two-year program, and you got two years of eligibility. Exactly. So this is a perfect alignment for you. Um, so tell me a little bit about, or tell us about your time at school. When you were, when you were in school, I believe, um, it was in 2009 they won, the, they won the championship? So... Gosh, I don't have the exact year. I think they won it in 2014, but I was there 2005 to 2007. So my first year, we won the Big Ten. We beat Notre Dame in the Fiesta Bowl. My second year, we won the Big Ten, but we got destroyed by Florida in the national title game. All right. And and how much did you get to play in the games? Did not. I was a practice player. You played on the. So you're on the practice squad. Yeah. Dressed for every home game. Traveled to the bowl games, and I was literally there as a preferred walk-on. And isn't that? Isn't that a lot for a walk-on that never gets to play in the game? You're trying to study. You're trying to get through business school. I can't imagine going to practice every day, going through the Rudy moments of dressing and never playing. Um, Wouldn't it have been easier maybe just after a year or two? Did you need to stay on the team to stay in school? Did not need to. I think I went in with the proper expectation of this was going to be my role and this would be part of the experience of being there. So I never went in with a pie in the sky. Did you ever think you'd go to the NFL? Did not. I knew I was not athletically on that level. To be a long snapper in the NFL. So you got to do all the hard work, even how to dress and travel for games, which I'm sure at some point you're not traveling in private planes, staying at the Four Seasons as good as the university is. But you're studying pretty hard. You got to graduate. You want to get a you want to get a great job. Why did you stick it out? I know I know at least me. I know a lot of people. If there's no necessarily benefit and you've come to the realization that you're not going to go to the NFL, what was the point of sticking it out? I'd say the point was the personal fulfillment, the personal dream. My parents met and got married there, as I mentioned. I had an older brother at Wisconsin. I had a younger brother at Michigan. 
the Big Ten, how our family feels about it. Sure, I mean, there's a lot of moments where I had friends, you know, partying, going to Coachella, going to Vegas, just having their jobs, having their income, just being college students also on the other end. At the same time, though, I knew those years would come, and it kind of removed my doubt of why am I doing all this, essentially. But you could have left the team, stayed at the school, still enjoyed when they kicked Wisconsin and Michigan's ass, been part of the Big Ten, made fun of your brothers, gone to all the games. In fact, you'd probably be more comfortable sitting in a seat than standing with all those pads on. Did you ever think about quitting? All the time. There are numerous moments you think to yourself as a walk-on, why am I doing this? And I think anyone who's had the experience would absolutely agree with that. You do it for your own reasons. If that is to network for your career after being a walk-on or being participating in, in, in NCAA athletics, if it is just for personal fulfillment as a personal goal. Did you ever try to quit? Did not. Did you ever have any conversations with people about quitting? All the time. All and, the time. And what did those conversations uh, entail? Every single person I ever spoke to said to me, if you really are not getting anything out of this and this is what you want, by all means, you know, move forward with your life. At the same time, though, if you think there is even a tiny bit of you that may regret this someday, so once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to play football at Duke or to play football at Ohio State, regardless of the wins and losses, if you think there's even a little bit of you, don't do it. You'll regret it one day, and it won't be worth it. So you're having some some fun. You're, you're part of huge history and tradition. You're part of the daily conversation of what goes on in college football. You're having your doubts about quitting, but you're thinking maybe I should stick it out. You mentioned networking. How much of in your mind at that time when you're putting the pads on, you're hitting the sled, you're coming in in the long summers or the cold winters, how much of about networking was even in your mind at 20, 21 years old? A lot because the role models I had in front of me, whether that be my parents or one internship in particular, the foundation was laid to have the proper mindset and to view things through the proper lens of everything is for a purpose, you have to maximize every opportunity, and you have to meet every single person you can to have as many open doors as possible when this is all done one day. So you graduated school in two years, you played through with the team, and now you're going to go out into the real world. Uh, When did you have your first internship? The summer in between my business school years at Ohio State, so it would have been the summer of 2006. So you, you, you finish your first year of business school, you have one year left, you have no real world experience yet. Zero. So you, you, what makes you decide that you should go spend the summer at an internship versus maybe playing football or doing some of the other extracurricular activities around school? Mark, exactly what you just said. I had no real-world experience. All the kids that I went to Duke with that were just hungry and ambitious and building incredible careers for themselves, all these kids were on Wall Street and traveling abroad and doing all different types <clears throat> so of these, things. So these, these, are, these are your colleagues that had uh, graduated college after four years? or three and a half years if they're as smart as you, and then said, hey, instead of maybe I'm going to grad school, but it, otherwise I'm going to go take amazing jobs and leverage my degree to go to Wall Street, real estate, travel the globe. And so someone that I would say was pretty far ahead graduating college in three years and then their master's degree after two more years, you're almost behind. Without a doubt, to not use those summers during undergrad to work at incredible companies, whether it's for free or not, the experience in itself, 
is more than valuable. And as an athlete, you do feel very behind. And then as a walk-on even further, you're asking yourself why you're doing it. So I had a sports background. That's where most of my connections were from just playing and being around it. One of my friends from home, Peter Schaefer, was a very dear family friend. We knew him for many years. Was working at a huge entertainment sports company called Platinum Ryan Entertainment. And I asked them if they had summer internships. I told them I'd be willing to work for free. And I asked if there was an opportunity. And sure enough, he put me in an interview process where I had to go in and, and demonstrate that I was capable. And it just worked out for that one summer. So what was your GPA in college? At Duke, 3.24. At Ohio State, 3.0 on the dot. How many athletes have those type of GPAs? I'd say it depends on the school you go to. At the schools you went to, Duke, I'm sure they had a pretty good GPA. I'd say for the most part, but the NCAA, they have minimum GPA requirements, so you, it can't be too low. But I'd say, I mean, definitely probably on the higher end of things. I, I, I don't think those requirements are too high. I think even with my <laughs> GPA, I could have caught into some of those uh, sports programs. So <clears throat> here you are. You go back to your roots. You've met all these amazing people, five years of school, five, four years of sports, Paul Hagen, Daryl Hazel, Jim Tressel, The Ohio State University, the most celebrated alumni programs in the world. And you go back to Peter Schaefer, who was a neighbor from Wayne? Childhood friend. We lived on different sides of town. Same thing, though. Pete came from a different side of town? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as people have heard about Peter Schaefer, the most handsome person you'll ever meet in your life. Very true. And so Peter Schaefer... After at everybody, a kid from the other side of town who you're growing up with, family, friends, I know your your brother and him go way back. That's where you go to to get your job. What about this network you built up there? Why why wouldn't you go to the alumni? Why wouldn't you go to the school and go to the job boards and say, Hey, look at how much I've contributed, look at my GPA, look how smart I am, get me a job. What what made you go to back back to your roots again? So I had pursued a lot of the different avenues you just mentioned. And I think a very normal experience for any college student would be that your resume gets lost in the shuffle and you end up resorting to people that you have personal relationships with that believe in you, that trust you, that know what kind of person you are. And essentially, that's how things truly get done. So here you are. You get an opportunity for an internship from a family friend, brings you into his organization. The hiring managers decide, here's this big boy, plays college football, Probably can help with some heavy lifting, and they get and they give you an internship. And in all transparency, I was part of that organization as a, a very entry level employee. I, I was an assistant at the time as well. Um, so you come in for the summer, no promises of anything. You still got to go back to school for another year. And what were you hoping to achieve? Hoping to get some real world experience just for the first time to see what it was like to not be on a college campus, to just be on a daily grind figure out how corporate America works, and essentially be mentored by people that maybe I helped share some values in common with. You're a hard worker. You're a team player. You're a great communicator. You learn phenomenal networking skills at this time. Now you enter into an office. What did you learn? I learned right away that whatever level I thought working hard meant I didn't know the first thing about it yet. So the CEO of this company, Ryan Shinman, was someone I got to interact with daily, which was a whole experience in itself as far as just how fortunate I felt. Not everyone would really get that, that opportunity. To see him, yourself, show up at 9 or 10 in the morning because of very, very big West Coast presence, so getting an early East Coast time didn't really have that much value. 
to take a breakfast meeting, conference calls, a lunch meeting, conference calls, meetings, a dinner meeting, come back at 7.30, 8 o'clock at night, more West Coast conference calls, and then go out to entertain at night and do the same thing over and over again and essentially just be running a race. I, I don't think I'd ever experienced anything like that in my life. You've done track and field. You've been around marathoners, sprinters, hammer throwers. You then went on to the football team. Every summer, in the heat, in the cold, you weren't a stranger to hard work. What did you pick up from your experience at Platinum Ride going back into now your final year of college or, or your master's program? That as challenging as being a student athlete can be and how hard you do have to work, at the same time, it's very regimented. You are being controlled and you are being told what to do, when to do it. In the real world and having work experience, there are so many things out of your control that you just can't, you can't pay that much attention to. You just got to keep moving forward. And the daily grind of not being told to be at training tables, not being told to be in the weight room and not having just such a set schedule, you essentially just have to be ready to kind of brawl at all times and you don't know what the next day will bring. So you go through all this hard work at school, you get out to the real world a little bit, you get a taste of it, and you learn that the hard work is just about to start. Did you see any similarities in that process as well? Saw a lot that the only two things you really had the ability to control were your attitude and your activity. So between college football and between working in corporate America, a million things would happen, most of them which you could not control. You graduate college, you made it through football, you're looking for a job. What were you thinking? Tell us a little bit about that process. So a lot of my friendships from Duke, a lot of my friendships from Ohio State were in the sports world. Originally, I truly thought, yeah, this was the direction I would go. I always had some interest in the representation business. So if that was at a talent agency, if that was at a sports agency... Platinum Rye Entertainment had a lot of relationships with different firms that I dealt with during my summer internship, and I thought it was a very, very natural fit. So as an intern at Platinum Rye, you got to deal with other talent representation firms? All the time. You're an intern. You don't have the right to talk to other people in the space. You're supposed to carry the Snapple and help Ryan get his car washed. What got you the opportunity to talk to these people, and what gave you the nerve to think you can? I don't think I had the nerve as much as it was more of an instruction at the time. So it could be something as simple as answering the phones as an intern. Hey, this is, you know, Jordan Bejant from Goal Marketing. Hey, this is Pete Raskin or Russ Bill from Goal Marketing. Need, need you to, you know, have Mark Zavala around him and call me back right away. So you have daily interactions, even as some, something as simple, like I said, as answering the phones. So literally being an operator of, of someone's phone, connecting back and forth. You're hearing these names. You're hearing these companies. Great start. How do you get them to even know who you are? A lot of the business was repetitive. Platinum Rye was doing heavy, heavy volume transactions, and they would do a lot of repetition with similar clients. Once they would go ahead and book talent for a corporation, if the experience was a positive one, I think they would do a lot of repeat business, and those relationships just got stronger and stronger. I was there for a total of 10 weeks. So in 10 weeks, how did you even, besides speaking to these people on the phone, how did that, tra did that translate to even meeting them from time to time? Yeah, so some of the people would come into the office. Some of the people actually worked next door. 
And so you're not supposed to be talking to these people when they come into the office. These are guests of Rye and guests of Platinum Rye. How did you speak to them or how did you get yourself in front of them? And then, more importantly, how did you get them to remember you? So if someone would come into the office, I would definitely make it a point to go up and introduce myself. Hey, I'm Harrison. We spoke on the phone. Really nice to meet you in person. You know, I know you're here for this meeting. If there's anything I can help with, please let me know. And if they came in more than two or three times, I would actually ask if we could you know, meet for coffee sometime outside the office. I'm an intern. Could I pick your brain on you know, the next steps of my career and the best way to go about any experiences you had? Did Ryan or Peter, your other bosses at Platinum Rise, suggest you do that? They did. They did. They, they did. They were always more than willing to help, and, and they went above and beyond to try and assist in getting a job after school. So 10 weeks, you make a handful of relationships. You go back to school. You graduate. You start thinking about your next career. You think you want to be in talent representation, and you end up in private banking, which you've been doing for your entire career now. Did any of those relationships come into play? Yeah, big time. So when I was finishing up grad school, a lot of my teammates at Ohio State were the type of guys that had the possibility of playing in the NFL. So they were going through a recruiting process of interviewing sports agents, interviewing private bankers, CPAs, any form of the representation business you can imagine, and participating in some of those meetings for no other reason than to try and help some of these guys that maybe didn't have experience with it. I saw very quickly that the sports agent field was not for me. Speaking of that, you spent you mentioned Paul Hagen and his role advising people. Did your time with Paul potentially give you a little bit of maybe a different view or an understanding of how to help your your colleagues out? I think um, you hear stories about the college roommate trying to be the sports agent or being the runner that can introduce them to the agent. Uh, why did they look to you or even allow you to help guide them? You're a long snapper. It's, this is very true. Mark, I was in a very different role, though. So anyone on the Ohio State football team, when I had first got there, I, I was not exactly the locker room favorite. I was kind of this weird grandpa coming over from Duke. I was a white Jewish guy from northern New Jersey. And before they even really had a chance to get to know me, there really wasn't much of a relationship with any of the guys on the team, nor was there really an open mind to develop one. But as they got to know me, and they kind of learned about my background and what kind of guy I was, there was a level of trust where I really didn't need or want anything from them, but there was a skill set in place that I could kind of help them navigate through some of the storm, the storms. So you were a little bit older, a little bit wiser. You graduated college already. You kind of saw a little bit of what the real world would be. So instead of trying to fit in or endear yourself to maybe a freshman of 18 years old who's fresh out of high school, Maybe he's a star in his own right. Instead of trying to emulate them and, and fit in, you stayed true to yourself. You leveraged your background and your experience to ultimately add value. That, that was all I ever wanted for these guys. You hear so many stories about guys going broke. You hear so many stories about some of these guys enduring tragedy. For me, the most relatable one that I saw very early on in life, as far back as middle school through high school and then obviously into college and grad school, was a lot of these guys surrounding themselves with the wrong people, which I always saw led kind of the two different ways. One, having someone who truly didn't have your best interest at heart that really had the wrong intentions. And then, you know, the other side, which unfortunately you see happening more and more, I had a few personal friends 
that were wrongfully accused of sexual assault. And I saw as a way to just kind of use my experiences to try and guide them away from these things. So Paul Hagen gives you a little bit of insight about what it's like to have a mentor and possibly the traits of being a mentor. Your skill set of getting to know athletes and how to help them um, grows over the years. It only sounds natural that you would go into some type of talent representation, management, uh, business. You're meeting sports agents and other agents at your time at Platinum Rye. You go into these meetings now kind of just as a friend, an advisor, a good guy saying, let me kind of help steer you in the right direction if you'd like me to. Let me help keep you focused on the right path so you don't end up in situations where you could be accused or even put in a situation to do something wrong. And you have this moment where you realize that being a sports agent isn't for me. Where does that lead to banking? So it was an incredibly hard decision because I had no finance background, no finance classes. Anthropology didn't discuss the financing of all this stuff? <laughs> exactly. Got it. And I had to figure out a way to somewhat, somehow transition into a more sustainable field that I, I had a passion for, that I wanted to learn about, that I wanted to do long term. A lot of these guys that I was surrounded by had financial groups that were working with them and managing their financial affairs. Some were with very bad people. Some were with very good people. They're not all bad. A.J. Hawk was a guy that I always looked up to. He was beyond humble. He had an incredible work ethic. He came from an unbelievable family. And I saw him from the time I got to Ohio State in the summer of 2005 to the spring of 2006 when he was the fifth overall pick in the 2006 NFL draft. I saw him as the same person. He didn't change. The money didn't change him. The high-profile aspect of things didn't change him. And he was someone I found out was working with a private banking group at Merrill Lynch in Columbus, Ohio, that he very, very carefully selected. And... I saw that as just an incredibly just professional guy that would never surround himself with someone that wouldn't be doing things in his best interest. So how do you get yourself into this group in Columbus, Ohio? Because I have a feeling that's where the story's going. Yeah, so I met the guy at Merrill Lynch in Columbus, Ohio that did AJ's day-to-day communication and day-to-day you know, finan- how? financial affairs. How'd you meet him? Through an introduction from another teammate, Chris Beanie Wells, that he was also working with. Chris and Beanie Wells so, is the one I introduced me. So AJ wasn't the introduction, he was more of the idol. He, he was. And so you started saying, how do I get the introduction? And you learned from Beanie that he also worked with him too. He also had a relationship with this gentleman, and he introduced us. How did you get to know Beanie? He was on the team when I was there. And I would imagine you'd probably fit in a little bit better with AJ than Beanie. I mean, a little bit, but AJ was kind of a man amongst children when I was at Ohio State. He was. First team All-America, uh, very close with his family, wasn't really the loudmouth, big shot type of a guy I think people would imagine. Really kept to himself a lot, was almost introvert. Chris Beanie Wells was younger. He was more of a family member, very, very kind of open about what he did and was easy to talk to. So he was someone I could speak to even more than AJ. Chris Chris, Chris is younger than you? He is. So when I was a senior, Chris was a freshman. And when you went to go speak to Merrill Lynch, what year was Beanie in? He had just graduated? He was in his last year, so he was an early entry So you went to somebody younger than you, 
somebody that was still in school almost and said, hey, can I? Can you help me? And you asked a, a colleague, a teammate for help, a younger teammate. Oh, absolutely, yes. And he wasn't the only one. I mean, I would say more so than anything. Ohio State is an NFL factory like a lot of other schools are. And I had good enough relationships with the guys on the team. All the guys that were first-rounders, Vern Golston, Anthony Gonzalez, A.J. Hall, Chris Wells, where I could. I could go up to them very harmlessly and say, I'm interested in learning about this field. Who is handling this for you? So it wasn't just one person that you saw. It sparked the idea for you to have a talk with all of them to learn more about the players in the space? Definitely. And possibly to find out who they were working with to potentially earn them as clients down the line? Definitely. I like that. Definitely. Very cool. So you go get the introduction to, what was the gentleman's name at Merrill Lynch at the time? Steve Boyevich. So you go ask to meet with Steve. And how long from your first meeting with Steve did it take to actually get the job? Three months. So Steve and I met at an initial meeting with Chris Wells. Steve was working for a gentleman who is historically famous at Merrill Lynch named Augie Senemi. Augie Senemi is this Merrill Lynch Hall of Famer, has been there for five decades, legitimately five decades, which is unheard of in, in financial services to stay in one place that long. After the first meeting, Steve had a good enough vibe for me. I, I actually asked him if he could introduce me to Augie. He arranged a breakfast. Here you go again. Not scared to ask. Not scared to go to the coach. Not scared to go to the people that are walking in the Platinum Rye offices. Not scared to ask Steve, can I meet your boss? Absolutely. Because this guy was historically known, and on top of his success, he had the reputation of being a very warm, approachable guy. You weren't nervous that Steve was going to say, I'm not introducing you to my boss. Get out of here. You're trying to jump over the jump, man, Harrison. This isn't for me. Not, not at all. Just because the way I think it's all the way you articulate things. So if you walk into someone's office with a sense of entitlement and you, there's a very strong likelihood you're going to rub them the wrong way, you're going to have a problem and you'll have a roadblock thrown in front of you. Now, was Steve repping Beanie at the time? He was. So he wasn't using you to get Beanie to co-sign with not, him? He didn't, not at all. If anything, Beanie's asking him for the favor. Exactly. He was not using me And if anything. he didn't want to hire you, he still has Beanie's business. Yeah, absolutely. So why do you think he introduced you to his boss? Why do you think he ended up giving you the job? I think he saw a guy that was honest and upfront with his intentions. I think he saw a guy that had very realistic expectations. And the way I articulated what I was looking for to him, I told him in a very non-threatening way, listen, I'm really interested in going into this industry. I'm more than happy to do it on any terms you want. I'll work for free. And I would do it for a team like this that's been with the firm for such a long time, that has an established track record, and I'd love the opportunity to meet with him if you're comfortable with it. Three months later, you get the job. Did they pay you? Worked for free for the first year. Did you have to go get any certifications, or did you have to get degrees? How does How did that what is that process? They sponsored me to take the Series 7 and the Series 66. You have to pass both of them to work at a wirehouse. So you went to work for free. They didn't pay you, which legally is a whole new world. Luckily, for interns, that's a good day. With New York City minimum wage, it's a better day. Um, <laughs> they sponsor you, so that was good. So they covered a little bit of the cost because they believed in you. They invested in you. And about a year later, you pass all your degrees. You get all your certifications. And they offer you a job. If you don't mind me asking, 2009 now? 2009. What was your starting salary? $35,000. In private banking? $35,000. You went to grad school. You went to Duke. 
you got a job in private banking with a very historic and high-profile group in Columbus, Ohio. You paid your first way. Did they buy you lunch that first year? They did. did. How did you get there? You drove? I was living in an apartment that was walking distance to the office. God bless you. No pay, free lunch. They sponsored your, your, your classes. You get any help from your friends and family? Yeah, I mean, you have to, right? Otherwise, how else do you live? You know, it was manageable, but that's, that's how you get by. You do the best you can and, and make it work. Did you ever think that maybe they, or did it even come up that, well, how they think you're really smart and you're hardworking and humble and a phenomenal network that maybe you can help sign some athletes based on your, your history, based on your career, and they were just using you for that? I never really felt that way because the team was so established, legitimately one of the top five teams at the entire company, which is an incredible accomplishment. They didn't really need me for those type of things. If there was a door I could open that maybe I knew the person that they didn't, I think those were different circumstances where... So how'd you make yourself valuable then? Tried to be the first one in the office every single day. Tried to be the last one there tried to learn as much as I could, never had a moment where I did not have a pad and pen in my hand. Were you the first one at practice and the last one out? Well, as a long snapper, you weren't required to be there that long. I was usually the first one there, though, not the last one. So you had to learn that from Ryan at Platinum Rye? Absolutely. Absolutely. My father, I would say, a lot as well, but the guys at Platinum Rye, definitely. So here you are. You're now in this private banking world, and you start working with athletes and agents. Is that correct? Yes. So you went back to your roots, you went back to what you know, you leveraged the skills you picked up in the locker room, how to relate, how to fit yourself in, and you really did understand how athletes work. And as I've gotten to know your career over the last seven, eight, nine years, athletes have been a very big part of your growth, Um, agents have been a big part of your networking. Um, And when we'd spoken the other day and we were trying to catch up and I think you were kind enough to give me an introduction now. Um, I asked you, I said, how's it going? You said, I'm in London at the NFL game. I said, you're working with the players. I said, you got all your guys out there. And you kind of gave me the Joe Pesci uh, Goodfellas line of, I don't know if you heard, but it's been a long time. I don't shine boxes. I don't shine shoe boxes no more. I don't shine shoes no more. I don't have my shine box. And you said, I'm now working with the administration. So nine years later, you've graduated technically from working just with athletes to now working with people of all types. Um, you've grown up through the entire process, and now you're playing what I'd say is the big leagues. You're dealing with the owner's boxes. You're dealing with uh, you know, the people that are writing those athletes to checks. You know, what would be something that you might have done differently? If I could start all over again and do it differently, I probably would have casted a much wider net to throw every single thing against the wall I could find. And then see what stick instead. Uh, where in your career would you have done that? So probably right from the beginning. From 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 your days at Duke. Uh, I'd say when I started at Merrill Lynch in two thousand nine. So my days at Duke, I truly have no regrets because the thought of doing a summer internship during those years, I don't think it would have added value at such a young age versus what I got out of it as far as pursuing the graduate school rule, getting a master's degree, getting a Big Ten championship ring from Ohio State. It's fair to say you might not have even known how to be effective at Platinum Rye if you hadn't gone through those processes of networking and maturing. Um, Casting a wider net at Merrill Lynch out the gate, 
did you have a very singular focus? What what about your process wasn't that wide? Absolutely. So I would say in the beginning, the focus was athletes, and we did have a lot of success. That was a comfort zone for you. It was, without a doubt. I didn't know, being always, always very honest and transparent, I didn't know what value I could add to a corporate executive at Goldman Sachs or at Facebook or Google or just a privately held business owner. What value was a 25-year-old with a cultural anthropology degree going to offer to someone? The answer is nothing. And I was very truthful about it. This was a comfort zone. This is where a lot of the Rolodex was, and it just kind of worked out. So I like to quote Wall Street a lot and talk about Blue Star Jets and you know the company that Charlie Sheen's father worked at, and he used that insight to give uh, some inside information to Michael Douglas. And Michael said to him later on in the film, why don't you give me some advice from a company your father's not the head of the union at? Uh, football players were your Blue Star Jets. What was the aha moment that gave you the confidence that you can deal with these executives and, and, and these non-athletes? So I started off with Merrill Lynch as a client service associate. I did not go into being an advisor right away. It came much later on. Answering the phones, preparing analytical reports, preparing financial plans for people of all walks of life gave me an initial foundation. As the conversations with the athletes kind of became very repetitive, you dealt with the same challenges that were very, very different than normal people outside of sports. It started kind of crossing my mind a lot that this might not be a long-term fit as exclusively just working with, with athletes. The aha moment was definitely around 2011, 2012, when we had a bunch of players we worked very, very hard for. They ran into some legal trouble. And one of those people was Aaron Hernandez. He was a client of our group yes. when everything kind of went down. And I thought to myself, we just spent three years working so hard for this player. He had a very good agent. He was represented by David Dunn of Athletes First, who'd been doing it a very long time. He's not like he was with no, a no-name guy. Ryan Williams on the marketing yeah, side. Yeah, and Spiro Pettis was doing his day-to-day. Absolutely. He was doing a great job as far as having the right people around him, he unfortunately was just living a life that no one was aware of, myself included. So you have these tragedies, whether it's something as grave as Aaron Hernandez or other athletes going through some troubles, and now you, you get you say, okay, I'm over it. I gotta I gotta take that career. It really took almost getting to the bottom of something so disastrous as Aaron. That is that kind of where you finally said, look, I'm gonna go for it. I'm gonna I gotta start transitioning myself I got to change my game up without a doubt and I started thinking of ways and asking people all over the country at Merrill Lynch our team knew a lot of different specialists experts in different offices everywhere and I started setting up as many meetings as I could with people within Merrill Lynch and within Bank of America to ask them how they spend their day who's their target demographic essentially what is the value they add for people that would separate them from some of our competitors Never walked into a meeting without a pad and a pen. Never told someone how much I, you know, I, you know, didn't appreciate their time. Always built the relationships and stayed in touch with people and just kept learning and learning and learning. And so instead of going and starting the cold call business executives all over the world, you ended up back in sports going after opportunities with the coaches, the administrators, and uh, now even team owners. So what ended up happening was a lot of my own classmates, as we've gotten older each year, the time is flying by, 
a lot of these people have now become athletic directors, player personnel people, agents themselves. A lot of them are working for ownership groups. And these are relationships that I have always maintained and invested a lot of time into. So you stayed in your field. You stayed where your comfort zones are. You had to get a little uncomfortable to get comfortable by learning how to evolve. But you evolved. And now you're dealing with a new set of clientele. We'd say uh, no more shining shoes. And you're, you've been with the same company for nine years now? Yes. In this millennial world, you don't hear that much more. Um, you know, where I grew up, um, you know, parents and, uh, you know, people of that generation, they worked for the same company for, for 27, 30 years. They got a gold watch. They retired. This day and age, when we look to hire people at Cogent, if they've been with a company for one year and they, and they haven't been at a new job every year for the last three years, but they have two, three years in, we almost look at that as their, their 10,000 hours. Um, but for you, for someone that now you know probably is in that position to take on that young student that just graduated and, and you see a little bit of yourself in, what are you looking for in somebody when you go to hire? Or what advice would you give to somebody not to go get a job, but if they're sitting across from you interviewing, uh, what are you looking for? What's the best advice you can give that person? Mark, the best advice I could give anyone is you have to. There's no, there's no alternative. You have to jump into something as deep as you can and just do as much trial and error as possible so you can not only see the things you enjoy, which is somewhat helpful, but even more helpful, the things that are not working for you. So how, do I, how does someone prove that to you in an interview process? They, they need to provide references and they need to be able to show what their experiences have been. So let's say I'm interviewing, interviewing someone, they're not going to get some of the more historical or kind of corny interview questions. I want to know what experiences they've had where they have faced adversity and what they did to overcome it and most importantly, how they responded. Speaking from someone that or speaking as someone who did not study finance, did not study accounting, your parents aren't investment bankers, you weren't handed a big chunk of money to go buy a piece of real estate and start a portfolio with, it seems that that quality, that trait of what your life experiences were and what you can mold it into um, is a very similar kind of approach of how you were built and how you got there. How does somebody get on your radar? I usually do it through friends. So I really believe everything is relationship driven because those are the people you're probably going to trust versus someone that you know, you've never met before. I, I will say this. We have absolutely hired people that were not through relationship introductions. And those type of people really, really had an untraditional background that I just had such a level of respect for that I thought they were a great fit. When you get, a, when you get an introduction to a potential person to work for you, how different is that from someone that sends in the, the most perfect resume you've ever seen? I mean, they are going to get to the front of the line just because I know the person introducing them. Trust. Without a doubt. It's everything. It's, it's everything versus someone who I'm just looking at on paper. Unless they have an untraditional background and something that really stands out, it's going to be hard for that person to compete. How important is speed to trust for you? You said what to trust? How important, how important is the speed to trust to you? Oh, listen, it happens over time. I mean, trust is something you build with people. I feel like if you get an opportunity on day one to build trust with someone and then it's on you just to build it and not screw it up, 
I'd say it would take at least a few months of someone continuously doing and following through what they say they're going to do. Awesome. Harrison, thank you. This was a lot of fun. Glad we got to catch up. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Thank you.